I'm Amy Halpern-Laff. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. Yasmin Morales-Alexander. Yasmin is an assistant professor in the Early Childhood Graduate Program at Lehman College. She was the inaugural recipient of Teachers College Shirley Chisholm Dissertation Award, recognizing TC doctoral graduates who have advanced the aims of democracy by promoting racial and gender equality, and is also a recipient of the Lehman College Urban Transformative Education Award. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you. It's good to be here. Your work has focused a lot on Latinx parents' engagement with early childhood programs and dispelling myths that Latinx parents don't value their children's education. In your doctoral dissertation on Mexican parents with children in a New York City Head Start program, you found that the parents were wholly engaged in their children's development and education and helped them primarily by communicating knowledge rooted in Mexican culture. How did the parents do that? Well, my simplest answer is they did it being themselves and just being true to who they are and and really relying on um, their own experiences, their own experiences growing up in Mexico and various states of, of Mexico, immigrating to this country and then subsequently having their children in this country and really kind of bridging those two worlds. Can you talk, I mean, would there be any specific examples you can give that you know, struck you as particularly striking and perhaps that the school sort of needed to understand in a, in a fuller kind of context? I, I think that it really begins with understanding or trying to understand how Mexican immigrant families conceptualize family engagement and conceptualize education. So I think that 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 conceptualization formed the crux of their practices. So for example, in many Latino cultures, including uh, Mexican immigrant families, the idea of educación, education, is, is starkly different from our understanding and conceptualization of education here in the United States. For example, Latino families will see educación as like um, moral, moral development, um, the idea of being a good person, and that if, if the child is respectful towards others, if the child demonstrates behavior that's kind and empathic and um, considerate of other, other people, and when they're young, in that sense, it's the family unit, then they're considered to be bien educado, right? Well-educated. And so it's kind of with that definition and that cultural value of educación that the Mexican immigrant families in my research really approached family engagement and their practices. So to give you a more concrete example, you would often um, hear parents saying to their children, you know, when they would drop them off at school, okay, have a good day, you know, be good, listen to the teacher, I don't want any complaints. And, you know, when we think about, you know, engagement, right, when we think about engagement, it's, you know, that Mexican mom in that moment is, is in fact engaging in a deeply cultural practice. Like her idea of this child having a good day and this child's 
reaping the benefits of a quote-unquote formal education is being respectful towards the teacher, paying attention, listening. I don't want any complaints. Hmm. That's interesting. How about the parents themselves? I mean, I've actually been involved in quite a few schools, and the metrics that tend to be used are, you know, did these parents come to the PTA meetings, you know, mm-hmm. do they, that sort of thing. And I'm wondering how that differs within Mexican-American culture. So one of the things that I learned, interestingly enough, is it's kind of like this, this dichotomy where there wasn't many differences um, in terms of the Mexican immigrant families and those practices that you speak of. Yet at the same time, there was a major difference in that their philosophical, cultural approach. So the parents in my research were very much interested in participating, like you mentioned, and kind of going to, let's say, a parent-teacher meeting. And they would uh, make it their business to leave work early, to find another adult to represent them at these meetings. Mm-hmm. And, when I, and when I would ask them why they did this, why would they engage? And they, they also talked about like volunteering uh, on a trip or volunteering at an event. And when invariably when I asked them why they did this, they would say things like, I need to make sure that my child is behaving. I need to make sure that my child is paying attention to the teacher. I want to support the teacher. And so really what that led me to to kind of think about is this idea of not just this concept of educación and and what it means to them to be being educado, but that they rely on these cultural values. It's always at the core of the decisions that they make. And so it's very important for them, again, that let's say the children are listening and paying attention and doing what it is that they're supposed to do. And it becomes the basis for the parents going that quote unquote extra step, taking a day off from work and and so on and so forth to participate. And so I would hear more of that and less of like, well, the school asked me to, or that's what the school wants. It was very much driven by what the parents wanted. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yes. You've talked about family engagement as a cultural practice. Um, What does that mean? And how does that tie in with what you were just saying? So one of the, so one of the frameworks that I um, rely heavily on to, to kind of understand phenomenon and to help my students understand phenomenon is um, like a sociocultural framework and a sociocultural framework suggests that, that people that children, people develop in the context of communities, in the context of families, in a historical or socio-historical time frame that then kind of informs that development and the decisions, again, that the community, in this case, parents and families make for and with their children. And that is, I don't think that that's unique to, to Latino families. I think that that's what happens to all of us. And so given this, how I frame it and and how I conceptualize development, families start engaging with their children in utero. (laughs) I mean, if we think about it, right? So, and, and what they do is, is cultural in that 
whatever, whatever things that, that we do to prepare ourselves for a new addition in the family, whatever we do when a baby comes into the fold are, are very unique, right? So what we may do here in New York City may look very different than what's done in, in Brazil, let's just say as an example. And it doesn't, that doesn't stop those behaviors and that conceptualization of engagement doesn't stop when our children enter formal schooling. And so if I'm raised, if I was raised with the cultural concept of the cultural value of respeto, respect, and I was taught that and my parents engaged me in that way, once I get into school, they're not going to stop necessarily kind of drilling that in my head and expecting that behavior from me. And Mm -hmm. so when I kind of did a a comparative look at kind of our, our American cultural values, I'm thinking, well, that's, it's the same thing. That's, that's what we do, right? That's why we read to our children at night, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we um, try to enroll them in enriching learning programs as early as possible because that's something that we value because here we value literacy here we value children talking we encourage our children to ask questions it's a cultural practice and and our values inform and and in many ways i dare say dictate the decisions that we make and for me personally you know it was a very interesting kind of engaging in this was a very interesting experience because i'm the i'm the daughter of Puerto Rican immigrants. And so um, I, I grew up understanding the tenants that the Mexican immigrant families were talking about. Yet at the same time, I was born here, the first in my family to be born here um, in the United States. I was educated here. And so, you know, and I'm an educator. So when it came to raising my children, it was very interesting because it was like this, I don't want to say necessarily a clash, although there are moments of cultural clash, but it was this always being cognizant on some level of like, oh, that's my very Latino side, you know, in terms of decisions I was making around my children. And this is, oh, this is so American of me um, mm-hmm. when I would make other kinds of decisions. The differences that you're talking about, is that not confusing for these children when they're, I guess the, it's more the emphasis than anything else that's different. So if their parents are prioritizing, you know, behaving and being respectful and that sort of thing and obeying, I suppose, and then the in school and, and certainly the, what I guess we'd call the dominant cultural value is, you know, ask a lot of questions yeah. and mm-hmm. achieve. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there, I, I don't, I don't know if I would go as far as saying confusion as, as I would say, probably tension. And I think that there are always cultural tensions. And I think that children experience it. I think the families experience it. Right. So like, just as an example, I had one mom who, you know, she had her child in early Head Start program and where she came to the, to the center with her child and, and almost like a mommy and me type of situation. And um, when it was the child's first day of kindergarten and the school staff said, no, you can't pass the gate. Like you have to leave, you have to leave your son here at the gate because mm-hmm. um, he's going to line up. I, I mean, right. she, she was floored. She was like, yeah. 
so consumed with like, oh my gosh, is he going to be okay? Because this is not, that's not what she got used to. And that's not part of her own kind of repertoire. That's mm -hmm. an example of a cultural tension, right? And so I think that what happens as a result of these tensions, children internalize them. Children internalize the differences, right? Just like we know how to behave in certain places. So children also learn how to kind of what their home world is, what their home culture is, what school culture is, what the school world is like. And then there's the other pocket of friends as they get older. And ultimately what we're talking about is bicultural beings. And if we look at it as, if we look at these tensions in a positive way, what it's doing is in fact creating bicultural frameworks. And that's a positive thing. In the context of that, of a bicultural setting, what should the relationship look like or a relationship look like between a school and families from an ethical point of view? How do ethics come into this? So I think one of the pieces that, that's also struck me is the level of authenticity in which these families spoke about um, their engagement practices and their understanding of engagement. And even in the midst of these cultural tensions and kind of figuring things out, they also spoke with conviction. And I think that conviction comes from kind of knowing who they are, honoring themselves, understanding who they are in relation to, whether it's in relation to the Head Start program, in relation to the schools, in relation to the teachers, in relation to their children. And I, I think that in terms of family engagement, schools, and ethics, we, we need to go beyond saying that we build relationships with families and really do it. And part of it is a certain level of authenticity. And I think that I'm not sure that, that schools as a whole and the, the people that reside in schools are being in some ways, true to themselves. <laughs> I, I mean, I, it's, it's hard to kind of understand. I absolutely have it, you know, in my head. And so I'll, I'll try, but, but this idea that it's, you know, yes, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna invite the parents and I'm going to have a, a curriculum night and so on and so forth. But where's the space for the, the staff themselves to say, I don't know what I'm doing. How do I do that? I've never worked with this population before. Mm -hmm. That freaks me out a little bit, right? So where is this authenticity, right? And with authenticity is integrity. You can't, they kind of go together. And so I think that that's where the whole ethical piece comes in and in family engagement. Yeah, and certainly typical teacher schedules don't allow for a lot of interaction with parents. I don't know how that happens, you know, in, in reality. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think that there, and, and obviously it's a much broader issue in terms of what teachers are expected to do in the amount of time that they're given um, to do it and, and how. But, but one thing I will say is, you know, schools themselves have a culture. And yeah. I think that the leadership of a school or the leadership in a school can, can work towards creating that culture. And so, you know, I've been in, I've been in programs and in schools where 
they're so open to families and not just open to families. It's almost like there's a recognition that without families, they can't do their job. And so the school feels very different. You'll see more families in the school itself. There's rooms dedicated just for parents to kind of get together. There's programming going on that, that addresses um, families' interest. Um, on the, conversely, you have schools where, you know, again, leave your, leave your child at, at the door. This is your four-year-old, the first time in a, in a UPK classroom in a, in a school. And they're like, nope, you can't, you can't come in. Nope. He's a, he's a big boy. He's a big girl. They're going to have to go by themselves. I mean, those are really stark differences. And so I think that that culture sends a message, not just to the families, but also to the teachers. And even if they're well-intentioned and well-meaning and are desirous of engaging with families, sometimes there are bigger pieces that don't allow them to do that successfully. So, yeah, I mean, part of what I'm hearing you say in terms of, you know, Amy's question about scheduling is that if a school sees this as really essential to its mission, then it's going to organize its schedule and its interactions around it. Whereas if it sees it as kind of peripheral, well, then there's not enough time for it. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to follow up because you've recommended that teachers, and I think this fits in with this, that teachers need to be immersed in the community of the children that they're teaching. Um, what would this look like and, and why, why is this so important? Well, because I take the position that family engagement is a cultural practice, I believe that, that understanding a culture requires, again, this, like, this immersive, right? Like you, you have to be in it. You have to know where, you have to know the family's communities because if you're immersed in it, then, then on some level it gives you the opportunity to see it in some ways the same way that they see it, right? So part of, part of our day-to-day -day is like these regularities, right? It's like we may go to the corner store to get our, you know, bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. And then from there, I'm going to stand at the bus stop because I'm going to take my child to school, which is two stops away. So, I mean, so this is like the everyday lives and experiences of children and families um, that children experience more or I don't want to say more deeply, but certainly more in terms of frequency than the amount of time that they spend in an actual classroom. And so it's almost like we're almost obfuscating a whole portion of this child's identity and this child's day-to-day -day life. And, and by extension, the identity and the day-to-day the -day life of the family itself. And so I think and I think that there's something fundamentally wrong with that, right? If we, we keep talking about, you know, we, it's certainly in early childhood, we talk about, you know, teaching the whole child and, and knowing and recognizing that this child comes with a family, but yet there's like this whole missing piece that we don't understand and we don't know. And so for those reasons, I strongly recommend kind of immersive experiences for pre-service teachers and, and, and even teachers themselves. Um, I've had students where, you know, they'll say to me, I, I, I just, I just go, to, I go to work. I go to my classroom. I don't live in the neighborhood. I didn't know that there was, I don't know, like a mosque, you know, three blocks down. So I think, again, that this knowledge that children have, this experiential knowledge that should and could be totally tapped into is not. And, and if teachers yeah. had opportunities to 
to live and breathe and smell and eat in, uh, in the community. I wonder whether it should be the norm that teachers, or at least that there's an attempt to hire teachers from the local communities. Otherwise, you know, cultural competence is really difficult to acquire during regular teaching hours. Yeah, you know, and I think, I, I think one of the, the joys and benefits of being part of the CUNY world, you know, I was a CUNY student, I'm a CUNY educator, uh, it's, you know, our, the biggest university, you know, that we have here in, in New York City, is that I think many of our teachers in the CUNY system pretty much stay in the city and teach in the city. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's, that's really positive. And you'll have a couple of outliers where that may not be the case, but certainly at Lehman College um, in the Bronx, a good number of our pre-service teachers either are already doing some type of work in, in local schools or are looking to you know, to teach in local schools. They're not committed to doing it. And so they, they enter the program with that commitment. What I will add to that, though, is that cultural congruence is, is important and those connections could be readily made. So, for example, if I speak Spanish and I'm dealing with a predominantly Hispanic parent population, obviously just on the strength of that, you know, language ability, I'm going to be able to connect. But one of the things that I find is that sometimes it doesn't matter. And when I say it doesn't matter is that I have found that teachers who share the racial and ethnic cultural backgrounds of some of our families may also need more work and deeper understanding of of some of these kind of cultural nuances. Yeah, speaking of that, how could teacher education programs better prepare teachers to engage with parents, engage with the community, with the kind of approach that you're talking about, sort of regardless of whether they happen to have grown up in that community or if they're coming new to the community? What can teacher ed programs do, both pre-service and, and in-service? So I think, a, like a two, I think a two-pronged approach would be useful, helpful. And I think that all learning should start with the individual. And by that, I mean, we're asking our teachers, our students to learn this culture, you know, here or to understand kind of where this family is coming from. But I feel that without that self-knowledge, learning about someone else and understanding someone else's kind of cultural values and regularities and nuances um, would be that much more challenging, right? And so I think that we need to rethink how we position the pre-service teachers or how we position the teachers themselves when we're, when we're talking about teaching them or professional development. The same way that we ask our students and our teachers to like center the child and that the child is the center of the learning experience, I think that we need to take that same approach with our students. So for example, I teach a family engagement course and one of my very first assignments is to have the students talk about their family engagement experiences in the families in which they grew up so that that gives them some sort of context 
for not only understanding themselves, but understanding themselves in relation to what they're, you know, the topic at hand and in relation to the families that they're going to work with. So I think that that's one piece of it, like the self kind of knowledge. And as a process of that self knowledge, then we need to facilitate conversations where we're kind of unpacking some of this deficit talk about families and Latino families and families of color or families that are from different religions or different backgrounds, right? We have those opportunities to, to kind of unpack that. Alongside of that, I think that in every course, not just in the course that speaks specifically about family and community relationships, but even our methods courses, I think that their field experiences need to somehow involve working with families. So I'll give you another example. We have a math course, right? Teaching math. What kinds of opportunities are we embedding for our pre-service teachers to say, to think about math in very different ways, right? So how is... I don't know, if we're in a community where, again, the majority are Latinos, what is this community's experience with math? How are they understanding math? And so I think that there are opportunities for us to embed it throughout the program and not just in this one class that's titled Family and Community Relationships. Yes, I mean, what do you mean by, you know, how they, what their view of math is, just to pick up on that example so i'm trying to come up with a a very concrete example if let's say that the community if the community in particular relies on a bartering system right that's not the same thing as going to the store and taking out a 20 dollar bill and ping, right? There's like another way, there's other ways that this community is conducting these transactions, these financial transactions. That is just one example that's related to math concepts, that if that's what a community does, and if that's the way the the community engages, then I think it would be important for teachers to know that, because then they take that information, and then they can develop lessons for the children, uh, develop obviously the curriculum, and then it's, it's much more meaningful and tied to, again, the children and the family's experiences. It's, again, it's, it's like that funds of knowledge, right? It's like there's a wealth of knowledge out there. And, you know, how effectively are we tapping into the funds of knowledge? Oh, you know, several of the things you said really seem to obviously tie together very tightly. I mean, one is looking at the funds of knowledge which goes back to what you were talking originally about the Mexican parents that you were working with in the Head Start program and the need for schools to really understand that there are multiple sources of knowledge and not only what the teacher is imparting in the classroom, but also, you know, you've been talking about authenticity on everybody's part, including teachers sort of recognizing where they're coming from and what they do and don't know mm-hmm. and being vulnerable enough to knowledge what they don't know. And you also mentioned the key to relationships. And I think when we were talking earlier, before we started you know, talking on the podcast, 
you were talking about how relationships are key to, to everything. Um, so what would be your ideal situation in terms of, and maybe you've seen them in schools, where the school folks and parents and kids are coming close to really being able to be their authentic selves and recognizing both the similarities and the differences of where everybody's coming from. I don't know if that's too long-winded a question, but answer any part of it you feel like. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I agree. Yes, I, I definitely think that relationships are, are key. And when I think about what makes a relationship and how do we, how do we get into a relationship, <laughs> And a part of it, like the components of it, it's communication, right? So there is some sort of communication, whether it's nonverbal or verbal. There are behaviors that support that communication. There is a disposition that's part of relationship building that says there is good in that person, right? That there is not just good, but that there, there is something that I can learn from that person. There is something that that person can learn from me. So I think that that disposition is, is really important because I think it, it goes towards demystifying what feels as an adversarial kind of construct where it's like parents versus teachers. And I think a part of it is how they view or, or what's out there as how they view themselves. And part of building relationships is kind of like having the courage, if you will, to, to put that aside, to be vulnerable and have courage, again, to be your authentic self. And that means you smile when, when a parent walks in. That means you say hi. Um, that means that you kind of, you know, there's a certain level of emotional intelligence that's part of effective and, and strong relationships. It's recognizing that, mm, that mom, that mom looks a little stressed out and taking out the two minutes to say, mom, you all right? You okay? You know, yesterday, yesterday you looked happy. You okay? Um, and that mom may not tell, tell the teacher. That mom may not say anything. That mom may go ahead and say, yeah, I'm fine and drop off the child and keep it moving. But that mom is not gonna forget that the teacher took the two minutes to ask about her. And it's all of these tiny little acts, if you will, that then kind of create this sense of confianza, which my participants talked a lot about, the sense of trust that, wow, that person has my best interest in, at heart and in mind. It's a lot of work, <laughs> I think. You spoke just then about the constructs that, I mean, schools are pretty generally set up, traditional American schools, and, and I suspect this is obviously true in a lot of other countries, are set up to sort of establish dominance and to sort of value the transmission of specific knowledge unidimensionally from the teacher or the school to the student, which a lot of times fits into this deficit model that, oh, the family doesn't have this knowledge and we have to fill the glass or whatever with this knowledge. And it sounds as though what you're saying is that you really need to break that down, that that's not a helpful model for establishing true relationships among the adults and the kids as equals. I mean, the kids, of course, are young, 
but they are whole people. And the adults, of course, are both older and, and whole people, as are the teachers. Um, is that what you're saying, that what you're advocating calls for a fundamental assessment of what a, what a school should look like and what a school community should look like? Yes, I think it's twofold. I, th I think it's two things that need to kind of happen in, in conjunction or simultaneously. And that is, again, reconceptualizing this idea of family engagement as a cultural practice. If we recognize that it is, in fact, a cultural practice driven by and large by the family, then that already puts kind of all families on a, I hate to say even playing field, but it yeah, that kind of puts them even, if you will, that it's like, well, you have your, your practices, I have my practices, all families have their practices. So I think that thinking, rethinking about family engagement, that's, it's not something that's driven by the school. See, the schools think that they own it, and they don't. Family engagement is owned by the family. And so I think that that's one piece of it. And then kind of taking that, that conceptualization or that, that reconceptualization and then begin to change everything kind of that goes on in the school to support that reconceptualization. So then there isn't this kind of this hierarchy of knowledge. Uh, Yasmin, what does that look like when there are children from different cultures, where their families may have different traditions and values? It seems to me that it would be quite a challenge for the teacher to negotiate. Um, yes, and I hear that often from students. I hear that from mm -hmm. program staff, from school staff, that it's like, oh, my, if I just like... If you know, how much translating, right, we could do when there's like, I don't know, maybe 50 languages in one, in one school alone. But I'm going beyond that. I'm, I'm really thinking about, it's interesting, I'm really thinking about ethics, right? So I'm thinking about, again, kindness. Kindness is kindness. Acts of kindness are just that, right? Again, the communication, the authenticity, integrity. How do you establish trust? These families, from whatever culture they are, they're entrusting this school, they're entrusting this teacher with my most absolute precious commodity, which is my child. And so I think that if we support schools and support teachers in engaging in those kinds of behaviors, I feel like the other pieces will come of how do you then honor, if you will, the variety or the diverse cultures in your school. Because I think that there are some tenants that, some human interaction principles that cross cultures, crosses religions, crosses race, crosses ethnicity. That makes sense. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't covered today? Um, no, I mean, I think Again, I will just, you know, I'll emphasize this idea of supporting teachers and, and school personnel and, and our students in, in higher ed to understand themselves and to think about themselves in the context of other people. And sometimes that means kind of really peeling that onion, peeling the layers, because we have all been 
raised by people <laughs> um, and we have experiences and we're bound to find, and I, I say this to my students all the time, I was like, we have more things in common than not. So let's start with those commonalities. Thank you so much, Yasmin Morales-Alexander. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We're posting transcripts of our interviews to make it easy to pull audio clips for classes and workshops. We'd like to hear how you've incorporated ideas you've heard on our podcast or read on the Ethical Schools blog. And if there are topics you'd like to hear more about, please email us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We also offer professional development for schools and after-school programs in the New York City area. You can contact us for details. Check out prior episodes and articles on ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Ethical Schools and Instagram. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denti. Until next week.